Welcome to the Fast Lane. Nick Miles is our auto expert. So drop it into gear. You've got a green flag. Here's Nick. Sunday, time to talk cars for the next 120 minutes. I'm Nick Miles. You're listening to our auto expert. A packed show for you today. We have scoured the world to find out. Actually, probably should be better saying Jen has scoured the world to uh, to find uh, things that are of interest to anybody that likes a throttle. Uh, Jim Owen is going to be on the phone in just a moment because on Thursday, Ford rolled out a new Mustang Cobra. Um, and it looks pretty mean. I was just checking my credit card balance in the news there, and I don't have enough because it's it's $130,000. Yeah, a lot of money. Jerry uh, Jerry Spahn is going to be uh, joining us to talk about Pebble Beach Concorde d'Alliance, which is uh, kicking off, I think, tomorrow. And uh, we're also going to talk about the top-rated SUVs in the country. We're going to find out all about the IndyCar races returning to Portland, Oregon. Nick Jane's joining us from Road Trippers to tell us about that software. Uh, Ryan and I were on an event this week in California uh, for the Honda Pilot and the HRV. And then we'll also be finding out about the Rebel uh, Rally. Rebel Rally. Spelled not Rebel, but Rebel, right? Like a girl. <laughs> it's a girl version of Rebel. It's Rebel. Um, and. It's what girls do, rebel. And Anton Warman's going to fill us in on uh, Tesla going uh, private, which sounds like a reality. And uh, Elon Musk's fantasy of not having to answer to shareholders uh, may be true. So Ford revealed a new limited edition Ford Performance 50th anniversary Mustang Cobra Jet uh, race car. It uh, is a turnkey race car, so basically no longer do you have to go into your garage and modify it. And joining us on the phone to uh, tell us all about this fabulous piece of machinery is uh, Jim Owen from Ford. Uh, Jim, first of all, $130,000. Is that how much this cost? Yeah, it, it, it comes out of the box at $130,000 for a mid-eight-second quarter-mile drag phenomenon. That uh, that's not bad at all, is it? That's uh, that's pretty impressive. So I think some of the competitors are sort of doing eleven seconds. I mean, unless you're an Italian supercar, which uh, nobody really cares about. But the truth is that the American muscle cars tend to have a hard time breaking the ten second, and you've done it with this. Yeah. So the Cobra Jet. I mean, if you think about it, Mustang you know, being around fifty four years, and here in Detroit, we just celebrated Woodward Dream Cruise, which is about a million people and about 40,000 plus cars cruising down Woodward Boulevard. And we chose to unveil uh, the Cobra Jet Mustang, you know, during that time frame. So if you think about it, the bookends, and I heard on the, uh, uh, when I was listening in, you know, you talk about Pebble Beach next weekend, um, this coming weekend, you know, celebrating a million people here in Detroit and then going out to the Concourse Belle Elegance. It's good bookends, and what better way to put it is an eight-second, 150-mile-an-hour trap speed Cobra jet. It, uh, I'm very impressed. I, by the way, I, uh, Ryan and I got to drive the Bullet recently in San Francisco when you released that. That was impressive. It sounded amazing. I, I, I can only dream about the sound coming out of this uh, new Cobra jet. So how many of these uh, are you going to make? Is it unlimited, or are you going to limit the supply? No. So we're celebrating 50 years of the Cobra jet. If you think about it, you know, Bob Tasker 
back in the 60s, Carroll Shelby, you know, the Prudhomme Super Snake. Back in 68, we unveiled the Cobra Jet engine that was wonderful for drag racing. And 50 years later, we unveiled the you know 50th anniversary of that Cobra Jet. So in honor of that, we are going to be doing 68 of them to match the year that we came out with the Cobra Jet. Not bad. Uh, the fact is that uh, they're probably going to go for a lot more than 130000 once they start sitting, hitting auctions with such a limited supply, right? Well, if you think about it, this is more of a part number than a car, right? I mean, it's built at the Flat Rock Assembly Plant, you know, where our 10 millionth Mustang was produced last week. I mean, if you think about it from 64 and a half, April 17th, 1964 till today, we have produced more than 10 million Mustangs and the 10 millionth was produced last week. That Cobra Jet drag car, complete with roll cage, you know, the FIA roll cage in there because it's a sub 12 second car, um, comes straight from the assembly plant. Then it goes to one of our, you know, Ford performance modifiers who actually upfits the vehicle, that 5.2 liter cross-plane crank with a big Whipple supercharger. I mean, you know, the, the, the guys and gals at Whipple, um, you know, are producing almost the same amount of liters in their superchargers as we are out of a 5.2 liter V8. Right. Uh, is it a, th it's a three liter supercharger. Is that right? Yeah, it's a three liter. And I mean, uh, it bolts on top of the engine and I mean, the guys and gals at Whipple do a great job, but you know, big. putting three liters of space above a 5.2 liter engine, you know, to compress the air in there so that you can rock it off the line is pretty impressive. So the original 1968, the FE uh, 428 cubic inch V8 powered Cobra jet had 335 horsepower. What's the new one going to have? We haven't announced the horsepower ratings what? yet. Um, I know. We haven't gone out there with the horsepower ratings yet. Um, but I will put it to you this way. You'll be surprised. If you think about it, our four-cylinder EcoBoost in the Mustang now produces over 315 horsepower. Now, I mean, that's our four-cylinder EcoBoost in your standard Mustang that you can buy and, you know, drive to and from school or, you know, up and down the Portland, you know, from Portland, say, down to Gold Beach, Oregon, driving on the coast with your convertible top down. This is a 5.2-liter with a 3-liter Whipple blower. That'll do, yeah, like mid-eight-second quarter miles. So we've, we've come a long way since 1968 in the ability for us to generate power out of that displacement. So just going down the facts here, you have the three liter supercharger, and then we go back to what was once the fastest, which was the Dodge Demon, which had the 2.7 liter supercharger, and that did the quarter mile in 9.65 seconds at plus 140 miles an hour, a little bit over that. So you're saying 8.5 seconds at 162 in the quarter mile? Um, mid eights. Uh, it's mid eight seconds and probably somewhere in that 150 trap speed. Right. Um, I haven't had a chance yet to drive it. <laughs> you know, the, the engineers are, you know, when they reveal it, they don't let us marketing guys get a chance to go behind the wheel at a quarter mile drag strip um, right away. Um, but yeah, it's going to be in that mid eight second range and, you know, 150 plus mile an hour trap speed. So how can you option these out? Do they come basically all the same, all the same color? All and the same. Yeah, so. yeah. I mean, you're pretty much the, it, it, you know, this is to be, you know, how do we say this? A turnkey race car. Right. Right. And, and, and I mean, a lot of the folks, at, you know, the people that I know who have bought the previous Cobra Jets, you know, like to make it their own with their, you know, their, their paint schemes and the, you know, the stickers and the, what they want to do. But for an NHRA, you know, certified drag car, um, you can, you know, pretty much 
turn around, step on your suit, and get ready to go at the quarter mile. I love it, Jim. Jim Owen from Ford, thank you. Thanks so much, guys, and I appreciate it, and I hope to see you sometime at the, at a drag race or a place where we can go left and right. Start your engines and you're off. Back to our auto expert with Nick Miles. Um, I am not allowed to eat for the next uh, five days because, uh, no, three days, five, yeah, something like that. Pebble Beach Concord Elegance starts uh, this week, and it's, uh, <laughs> it's full of fabulous people, cars, and delicious so foods and eat. wines. I mean, like when you go to Concord, you, you, you have, have a piece of orzo in your beard right now. <laughs> or piece of Greek. Yeah. Uh, um, well, that's what happens when you have a big uh, manly beard like me, um, as opposed to a little waiter mustache, Ryan. <laughs> uh, on the phone, joining us uh, today is uh, Jerry from Rolls Royce, a friend of the show, and uh, you are going to have some fabulous, fabulous cars at this year's Concours, aren't you, Jerry? Well, there we are. I'll be clean shaven for this year for uh, a couple of these Concord <laughs> Maybe next year I'll I'll go for the uh, the, the stylish British inspired beard. Oh really? But, uh, <laughs> like King Edward, I think I was looking at pictures of King Edward the other day. I think I look very much like him. Unfortunately, I don't have the bank account like King Edward. You, you look just like Nick Miles, and that's the oh, way we want you. Oh, <laughs> look at you, sweet talker. Oh, so yeah, no, we're 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 really excited to come back to uh, Double Beach Conquest Elegance and Monterey Car Week because there's it's so much that goes on this week. And this year, you're absolutely right. We. Uh, it's, a, it's a huge year for us. Last year, we, we brought in the all-new Phantom. Uh, this year, of course, the headliner of the show for us is going to be the, the new Culloden, uh, the Rolls-Royce of SUVs. Um, we have got a couple of um, very, very notable handovers um, that we'll be doing to our customers. We can talk a little bit about. And then, you know, what, what people don't know is that there's a, this is a... Uh, this is a great show. I mean, uh, during the Concours is when collectors pick up their commissions. So we've, we're bringing a whole uh, special 2018 Pebble Beach selection of cars for a number of our collectors. And uh, you know, we know that they'll be going home a little heavier on their, uh, their shipment trucks on the way home. <laughs> uh, what, what, what are we, when we say handover, is this like uh, when I go pick up my car from the showroom? Is that the same thing if I, you know, if I'm not in Rolls-Royce terms, but in like commoner terms? Commoner terms, it's delivery. But when we deliver, we, we, we don't send you back to the service department, no. I mean, one, one that's really exciting, is we've done it um, virtually every year for the past, the past four or five years. This is my fifth consecutive pebble, and we've done one every year, is we will be delivering the latest commission to uh, Michael Fuchs, who's a very, very well-known, uh, not just Rolls-Royce, but an extremely well-known car collector who is known for his, the gem, his gems, his Rolls-Royces. Uh, he has a um, brand new eighth generation Phantom that we'll be delivering Friday at Quail Motorsports, uh, Quail Motorsports gathering. Ooh! So, uh, did he have it bespoke out and all specially uh, colored and designed? Well, I'm not going to tell you. You'll have to come by uh, or keep your eyes peeled and ears peeled at uh, about 10 a.m. on Friday. Um, but, you know, as, I think as people know, Michael, Michael is a collector who loves to play in color. He's done some incredible colors. He actually, it, it, you know, just to remind your listeners, at Rolls-Royce, if one of our 44,000 colors isn't enough for you, 
we will create a very specific color. So right now, Michael owns nine reserved colors uh, in the uh, Rolls-Royce collection of colors. So um, I can't means, say much so that, about that it. That means nobody else can have that color, right? No one else can have it without his permission. Okay. And it's been, it's been used before. He has more than any other Rolls-Royce owner in the world. So, um, you know, you, you'll have to keep your eyes peeled to see what it is. I don't want to give too much away. Um, Michael hasn't seen the car. He knows what he wanted. And uh, so far, I've never seen him disappointed when we've delivered one. He's always, he's always like a, a kid on Christmas morning. And uh, we, look, we look forward to doing that on Saturday. I'm I, sorry, on Friday. I know it would never happen with Rolls-Royce because you get everything right. But, uh, but it, I could just imagine that. Well, wait a second. I thought it was going to be blue. <laughs> that, that, that's, that's my twisted mind, Jerry. No, I can honestly tell you, Nick, I've never, ever heard that. I, I, uh, I've, I've probably witnessed or participated 30 or 40 handovers, not, not a ton, uh, not a tremendous amount. But everyone I've seen, um, you know, our, our designers work with the owners on the commissions. So we know what they're looking for. Uh, what, what's beautiful is they've never seen it all come together. And uh, it, it's great for them to see what their inspiration was, what their direction was, how our designers got it right. So it's not a total blind. I mean, we, he knows what colors he's working with. And, um, you know, I, I think he's going to be extremely impressed with how it came out. So he also gets a little nameplate on the bottom of the door, which has his name on it, right? The bespoke nameplate. Uh, and be, because uh, he is very well known in at Goodwood, Home of Rolls Rice, inside the uh, the factory and the workshops there, um, there's also multiple signatures, uh, autographs on the car by the time it reaches him. And uh, Torsten Miller-Otwosh, who's our CEO, um, every year always signs the car uh, uh, after we turn it over to Michael. Did you order Michael Fuchs nameplates in bulk? <laughs> <laughs> Everyone is unique to every commission. <laughs> right. I was just thinking, you know, like he's going to have another ten cars in the next five years. So we'll just let, can you guys make ten of them. Uh, all right, so not that hard to engrave. That's not he, the hard part. <laughs> tell me, uh, tell me that he, uh, Michael, is well known for ordering cars in fuchsia and bright colors. Uh, is that what we can expect to see at the end of this week? Well, I think um, what you'll see throughout Monterey Car Week coming from Wells Rice is a lot of really unique bespoke cars. Um, you know, he does that for a particular reason, but that's not what you have to do. You, you know, uh, for example, you'll see quite a few of the new black badge uh, bespoke series cars that are that'll be in Pebble Beach this year. Uh, it's been a, a very strong year. I think we're in year three of our black badge. Um, since it, it came to us, since we, we launched it, uh, we have a, we have Ghost, we have Wraith, uh, we have Black Badge Dawn now, which is new this year. Um, you'll see quite a few of them, and they're not all black. I think there's a, a bit of a misperception among people who don't own Rolls Royce uh, motor cars that, that think, oh, Black Badge, they're all blacked out cars. Um, we've got some beautiful Black Badge cars in blue and blues and reds and uh, yellows and just some really gorgeous colors and then we have a, a couple of cars we'll be showing that are really magnificent that are in black so um you know it, it, it's going to be the whole spectrum on top of that we'll have uh, a, a few phantoms that we'll be showing uh throughout the week um everything from elegant silver to uh some 
some new colors that uh, that have come out over the past year. But you know, phantoms are much more rare. It's a very rare thing to cite uh, a modern phantom. I uh, you, the colors that you use, especially. Uh, I think I drove a wraith, which was in a a Caribbean style blue. But the the names of the colors you come up with is almost as exquisite as the color itself. Won't it? <laughs> I believe the wraith you drove was in Salamanca blue. See? I think it was a black badge race. I think I, I know that car very well. It, it's <laughs> Our very, good friend Elizabeth helped design that car. <laughs> it's very uh, beautiful, but um, I have trouble saying the name sometimes because they're, uh, you know, very uh, exquisite, and I'm more of a cheeseburger well, type of guy. <laughs> Nick, all you have to do is sit back and enjoy them, okay? Uh, you, can, you can get the colors as you need them. All right, Jerry, uh, we'll look forward to seeing those cars at uh, the Concours coming up uh, this week. And, of course, uh, Ryan and I will be there. I'll be at the Rolls-Royce house. You will take pictures. We'll take lots and lots of pictures uh, so we can uh, display them all online. And, Michael, congratulations on getting another bespoke Rolls-Royce. I'd just like to see that garage. It's probably got more Rolls-Royces than you can believe. Jerry, we'll see you at uh, Pebble. We'll see you at Pebble, Nick. Thanks a lot. Excellent. Good to chat. You're listening to Our Auto Expert. I am Nick Miles. Still to come, packed show with lots of uh, stuff, in, including the return of IndyCar to Paul and Oregon, the top 10 SUVs, Nick Jane, some road trippers, and we'll find out about two new Hondas. That's coming up. <laughs> to the floor. Our auto expert with Nick Miles continues. Uh, welcome to Car Talking All Day. I'm our auto expert. We're going to talk about some of the best-selling cars in the United States, which includes these compact SUVs. There used to be a category that nobody was really interested in, and in the last 10 years has pretty much overtaken all of the other segments to be the number one segment. Uh, that's the size of the Nissan Rogue, Toyota RAV4, Chevy Equinox. The uh, original number one selling category was, of course, the sedan, the uh, American family car. But uh, that's all changed over the last few years. So let's talk about who are the big sellers and uh, who are the big not sellers, I guess. Uh, interestingly enough, um, Jeep is super popular. They have three vehicles in the uh, top ten, which include the Jeep Cherokee, the Jeep Grand Cherokee, and the Jeep Wrangler. Now, the the, the Grand Cherokee is a midsize, and they're I'm not actually sure where the Wrangler falls. I think it falls right between the compact and the um, and the midsize, probably right in the middle there. Uh, Ryan, you have driven all of those. The Wrangler, the Grand Cherokee. I've and never the Cherokee. driven an Escape before. Well, we were talking about Wranglers. Oh, okay. Oh, well, yeah, all the Jeeps. Jeeps. Yeah, you've driven all the Jeeps. Uh, have you driven the Toyota Highlander, which is at number nine? No, I haven't. I haven't driven the new one. I haven't driven the brand brand new one. Yet. It looks like a Cylon yeah. up front. 
uh, which is kind of appealing to me because I like science fiction. Uh, it's always been the one with the best third, low, third row and second row, or best second row legroom, definitely. They sold 52,000 of those uh, last year. Uh, number uh, eight, the Grand Cherokee Wrangler is at uh, number seven. Ford Explorer and Escape uh, are in there too, the next two. Um, they sold 67,000 Escapes last year. That's they still lot. sell them? Escape still. Yeah. Didn't we see an interesting escape coming back from the airport? Yeah, it had like deep dish rims on it and it was all lowered. Yeah, I'm. That's not what I see as an escape. No. Uh, I'm not sure why. It makes me want to escape. (laughs) Escape. That was escape. What? Poor thing. Uh, the Honda CRV (laughs) is at number four. They sold eighty-two thousand of those last year. That that I'm surprised actually isn't number one because it's super popular. Uh, everybody I know always considers the CRV when they're looking for an SUV. And then number three, uh, the Chevy Equinox, which I think there's three different versions of it now, right? There's a two-liter turbo, a 2.5-liter, and a diesel, three-liter. Um, so you can get three different kinds of uh, Chevy Equinox. Is that right? I don't yeah. know. We drove so many. E- <laughs> we say this every time. Equinoxes. Equinox last I. year. I couldn't even tell you how many of them there were. So many trims and so many engines and one for everyone. Number two on the list of the best-selling SUVs. This is interesting because um, it's probably. I think it's the oldest when I look at this list. The Rav Four. Toyota's Rav Four is the second best-selling SUV on the planet. Uh, Ninety-one thousand four hundred and fifty-nine. Uh, last year which was number one last year number one is an interesting one it's the nissan rogue Mm -hmm. uh recently read the drove that rogue dog uh the rogue however is a little bit of a of a misconception that it's number one because there are two rogues both called rogues but they are different vehicles one is a uh is a rogue and then there's the rogue sport and the rogue has three three rows and the road sport has two rows um, and they're actually different sizes so the rogue is the same size as the honda crv the rogue sport is the same size as the honda hrv but they lump them together they found a loophole i guess in the counting so i think if you split them out i'm not sure they would be number one they may be uh, but i'm not sure they would be number one out of this list jen which one would you own um the wrangler would you yeah, I love the Wrangler. You're that kind of girl, aren't you? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Ryan? Yeah, Grand Cherokee or Wrangler, one of those two. Ah, oh, it's a tough one for me, looking at this. I think I would probably own Everyday Driver, the Wrangler. Yeah, the the Grand Cherokee is too big for me. Um, it's super powerful, <laughs> but it's uh, it's too much car. Not for that many dogs. Yeah. No, the dogs have their own vehicle already. <laughs> I bought the dogs. My five dogs have their own Land Rover, uh, which, you know, which uh, I had to buy them because uh, you can't imagine the amount of pet hair in a Bentley. It doesn't work. Can't take my dogs out in press cars. Just, it just, uh, you know, they leave muddy footprints and uh, dog hair everywhere. Slobber on the I did that. I did that. So uh, when I was doing, I was doing mornings uh, a while back, and I had my cell phone hardwired into the uh, hotline on the desk, and it, it rang, and we thought it was our guest, and answered the phone, and it was somebody from uh, Subaru who said, "I just want to remind you, you can't have dogs in the car." 
All right, thanks. That uh, is thanks, not, Mom. That's not Howie Mandel, who we were expecting to call there. Uh, it just happened to be uh, Subaru telling me to remind me not to put my dogs in the back of the press cars, too. Uh, you're, you've owned a, um, a forerunner, Ryan. Have you ever owned an SUV, Jen? No. Yeah, just trucks and Camaros. That's all you do? Yeah, pretty all much. Right. Yeah. Low to the ground or way high up in the air. Yeah, you, <laughs> no yeah. metal range. You're confused on both things. <laughs> I I think that uh, the Nissan Rogue probably deservedly um, is one of the top vehicles in there. I would say the top three, uh, top four out of those. Uh, there is only about three hundred and fifty cars between position number three and four with the Honda CRV and the Chevy Equinox. So they just, you know, one or two dealers doing their business would have pushed those sales way up this year. I'm not sure what, what would you buy? I'm not sure. Well, you can go see all of these vehicles at ourautoexpert.com. We have reviews of many of them uh, online. You can go watch the videos, uh, read about the vehicles, and also listen to this show right on ourautoexpert.com. Stay tuned. More of Our Auto Expert with Nick Miles is on the way. Our Auto Expert continues. Here's your host, Nick Miles. It's Sunday. We're talking cars. It's Our Auto Expert. 11 years uh, since we had IndyCar in the Northwest. And uh, we are getting IndyCar back, which is exciting for a lot of IndyCar fans. Uh, or a lot of race fans just in general, I guess. Uh, Jen, you went to some of the original IndyCar races. I did. You? I went three years in a row, and Michael Andretti won every year um, I was there. He was always the favorite uh, when it was in Portland. Uh, joining us on the phone is uh, Jerry uh, from, uh, he is the president um, of the IndyCar uh, with the Grand Prix coming back to Portland. Uh, this is quite a historic race for Portland, isn't it, Jerry? No, absolutely. And, uh, you know, thanks, first of all, for inviting me in to join with you guys. And, um, but no, it is. You know, in fact, um, it was pretty neat. We actually had a, a team testing out here couple of weeks ago, and it was Zach Beach with the Andretti team, but I also wanted to say that Alonzo Jr. was here uh, along with the Harding Racing team, and, uh, you know, Alonzo Jr. was actually, this was his first victory in IndyCar. It was here in 1984, uh, which happened to be on Father's Day. You know, I, so there's I always think, been uh, that. Jen, that. Jen's a massive fan. She just melted into a pile on the floor. Yes, I did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, we come yeah, for the the guys come for the cars. Jen comes for the races. Oh, both. Oh, hello. <laughs> I come for both. <laughs> uh, so no, absolutely. Well, this this year definitely is not going to disappoint. You know, we've got a lot of young uh, up and comers. You know, we've got Alexander Rossi and Marco Andretti and Joseph Newgarden. And uh, you know, I got to say, you know, I've uh, you know not just a fan of IndyCar racing for uh, gosh, you know, um, I actually was here in 1984 for the first race. But uh, I got to say, you know, it's it's certainly one of the most, if not the most competitive years I've ever seen in the series. And uh, you're definitely going to love the drivers. I mean, they're just they're just a kick, you know, and they're all great. They're pros, but they're also probably some of the nicest athletes you're ever going to encounter. It seems like a no-brainer to have IndyCar. Um, this, of course, in the Northwest is where a lot of the speed records were... Uh 
were accomplished in years gone by. They've built some of the most amazing drag cars, funny cars, race cars here uh, in the years gone by. It makes absolute sense. So, so what happened in the last 11 years? Why has it taken so long to get a race which is so important to so many people back to the Northwest? Well, kind of what happened, and, and I'll make a long story here really short, but basically in 1996, uh, the series fragmented. It split into two different series. And uh, so kind of by the late 90s, we had, we had lost a lot of the big names. They had gone to another series, uh, which was the Indy Racing League, and then you still had some other people racing in kart championship auto racing teams, which had been here you know, since 1984. It was the kart series. And then so really it was about 2002, I'd say, that was really the last year where we still had some of the top teams here in Portland. After that, they had come to the IRL, and, and um, um, so we didn't really have them necessarily here as much. Then uh, 2008, the series, both series actually decided, you know what, we really need to get together again. And now we have everybody together again. But, but honestly, we can all remember what happened in 2008, you know, the economy took a, a turn for the South and, um, you know, IndyCar has taken a little bit of time to get uh, back on the right tra trajectory. And, and it certainly has in the last five, six years. And we decided, you know, about six years ago, let's, let's take a look at uh, bringing IndyCar back to Portland and started having conversations with IndyCar. And, you know, here we are today, you know, it's a, it's an overnight thing that took six years to happen basically, but uh, everybody's super, super excited about it. The city's excited about it. The response that we've been getting from fans has just been tremendous. So we're excited. You know? So, so uh, you know, please don't let, uh, let it go away again. Just asking you to try and, try and keep <laughs> yeah. it uh, in the Northwest. Uh, if, if people want to attend the race, uh, give us the specs, give us the ticket uh, location and, and, and where they can find them. And then presumably there's tickets still available. Oh, yes. Yeah, we do still have some, but I got to say, you know, they've, they've been selling quickly, you know, since we launched tickets on April 17th. Uh, it's been strong and solid. But the best way to, to inquire about tickets is to our website, and that is portlandgp.com. And you can pull up seat maps. Um, we do have some, some additional RV spaces that we just recently opened up. So we do still have uh, a few spots left, you know, if anybody wants to bring the rig out for the weekend. But uh, that's always going to be your best resource for info and updates. That's portlandgp.com. You can also sign up on uh, through the website to uh, get updated information emailed to you as well. Now, the races are September 4, the, the qualifiers are September 1st, is that right? And then the race September 2nd, is, is that, am I getting the dates right? Yeah, absolutely, Nick. You got it right there. So it's Friday is practice, um, not just for Indy cars, but also, you know, we do have the full Mazda Road to Indy with us, and that's going to include Formula 2000, uh, the Formula Mazda series, as well as Indy Lights. And then on top of that, we also have the Mazda MX-5 Cup series, which typically those are, those those races will bring out anywhere from 40 to 50 entries, and they're all basically in the convertible Mazda MX-5s. So that's that's a hoot. So basically what's going on Friday is, you know, we've got practice and qualifying for some of the different series. The Indy cars are going to be practicing on Friday. The Indy cars will be practicing again on Saturday. But Saturday afternoon, the Indy cars have what's called the Fast Six Shootout. And I got to tell you, it's probably one of the most exciting events of the weekend, you know, next to the actual race itself. The format of uh, the Fast 
Fast Six, if you haven't seen it, is basically they take, you know, you've got 24 to 25 Indy cars that are going to be here this weekend or, you know, over Labor Day weekend. And uh, they break it into two groups, basically 12 and 12. They shoot it out in each one of their groups, and then they take the top six. Those six will advance together. They'll join the top six from Group A, top six from Group B, make that a shootout. And then they advance the next six, and that's what's considered the fast six. And it's it's just lickety-split, back-to-back-to-back, and nonstop action. It's a ton of fun. Uh, then we do have the IndyCar race on Sunday. Uh, and the race is going to start uh, at about 12.06 in the afternoon. And that is, uh, if you should be unable to make it, which would be a crying shame, but that is also televised as well, right? Yes, it'll be live on NBC... SM sports, sports yeah. yeah. So uh, let I just watched on a plane recently the Ferrari movie and was pretty horrified at how dangerous uh, uh, racing can be. Uh, back in the fifties and sixties, uh, they talked about some of these race cars uh, were just horrific, and and people used to die regularly at racetracks. But that that doesn't happen anymore. How how safe is the modern Indy car? Uh, you know how how protected is the crowd? Is it uh, a lot of fire and smoke and and high safety? Uh, it seems like every time I've been to uh, these these Indy races, that it's it's very very controlled now. No, it is, and, and Nick, that's a great point you touch on there, but the, the safety systems today versus where they were in the 50s, 60s, 70s, even 80s for that matter, are really night and day. Um, now, basically, what the driver sits in, it's a carbon fiber compartment that's basically built around him or her, and the driver is literally strapped into the vehicle. So, so now when you do see a race, and as horrific as it can look, um, with pieces of the car breaking apart, it's actually designed to do that because then it absorbs the, the G-force and the impact, you know, rather than having the driver have to absorb that. And the other, the other element that you, that you touched on too was the fire and the smoke. You really don't see that anymore. You know, there was, uh, an invention years ago called the, uh, the fuel cell, which is essentially it's a rubber bladder that the fuel's in. You know, back in the old days, they would have aluminum or steel tanks, and as soon as those got ruptured, um, then the fuel would leak, and obviously it would hit like a hot part of the engine exhaust and light on fire, and that's that's what happened in the in kind of the older era of racing. But today, you you really don't see that. And honestly, you know, we'll talk about uh, Portland International Raceway here. There's never been a major accident uh, in an Indy car there. Knock on wood. A uh, number of the team owners are friends of mine, and, and they've said, you know what, Jerry, you know, we, we'd love coming back to Portland because you know what? None of us have ever destroyed a car here, you know? So it's a, it's a very, very wide open track. It's a safe track. There's a lot of runoff room. It also lends itself to being uh, very competitive. I mean, I think you're going to see a lot more passing than ever before this year just because of the configurations of the cars. You know, we're going to have a full field. Um, and I got to tell you, it's it's just going to be a good show. I, uh, I, I am always impressed, by the way, about the amount of inventions that are in the modern car that came from cars like Indy. 
this is sort of the cutting edge, the pioneer of technology. I mean, we wouldn't have buttons mounted on our steering wheels if it wasn't for things like indie cars, because uh, you, you know that what is absolutely necessary in a lot of indie cars, bits and pieces that now filter their way down to consumer cars in showrooms that uh, you know you race on the weekends and we go out and buy those new cars on a Monday, and they have a lot of the features that came out of motor racing. No, and you're you're absolutely right with that too. Yeah, that that's kind of what they used to say. You know, there was the old uh, race on race on Sunday, sell on Monday mantra. But you know, what you're talking about is the technology transfer from racing into everyday passenger cars. And there are certain inventions. I mean, even the seat belts in cars that actually originated from racing years and years ago. But um, yeah, and it also goes along with uh, what I just mentioned a little bit ago. You know, with uh, with the cars basically looking like they're getting destroyed, but it's actually a safety cell that's around the driver. And that's the exact same thing you have in today's vehicles. You know, you've got the crumple zones. The cars are basically designed to be hit. and I don't want to say destroyed, but if you look at the passenger compartment on any modern day road vehicle, um, you know, crashes that happen today, people walk away from, but had they happened 20 years ago, you know, there could be some serious traumatic injuries. So that technology has translated from racing into everything that we drive every day today. What I think is super interesting is that Ryan and I go to probably about 10 races a year, uh, different kinds of races. And in every single race, the Andrettis have their fingers somehow into that race. Like, uh, what, what do we go to? The, uh, the GRC? Ra- yeah, Global Rally Cross from Red. Yeah, Global yeah. Rally. They have the uh, And who's Andretti. the leader, too? Who's always the leader? It's the Andretti racing team with Volkswagen. And they won't, yeah. they won't show us the engines. They won't show us anything. Everything's it's all secret. Yeah, it's very secret. Yeah. Absolutely. Do, do yeah, you, uh, you can't you, show all your cards. Do you guys, uh, like, do, do a lot of these indie car races hide the engines when they go into bays for service? No, you know what? So here's here's something that's actually uh, uh, unique with indie cars is um, there's two manufacturers. We have Honda and we have Chevrolet. The engines are all actually leased through Honda and Chevrolet, and they're sealed. So teams cannot get into the engines and do anything to them. So... They're restricted there. So, no, you know, when you're here for the race and you definitely need to get a paddock pass, you can literally walk right up to all the teams, drivers, and the cars, and you look at the engine, it's right there. I'm, I'm um, sitting, by the way, yeah. watching Jen fill out media credentials right now for this race. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. She's, she's excited. She's super excited. Hey, uh, I am a huge indie person. The, um, Disney, wonderful world of sports. I totally was hooked with Under. <laughs> See, <laughs> you, you, got, you got a fan right here, and it wasn't the fan you were expecting. Yeah. Uh, tell us a little bit about where we can get tickets again. Yeah, the best, best place is our website. That's portlandgp.com, and um, it's got all the announcements, any specials we have, as well as a seating chart. And um, definitely, you know, anybody out there listening, if you can get into the paddock, I guarantee you it's going to be one of the best, best treats you've ever seen in professional sports. You're literally right up the drivers, the crews, and awesome. um, there's no experience like that. It really isn't. Jen just passed me a note. She says, Jerry, please approve my immediate credential. <laughs> All right. More of Our Auto Expert with Nick Miles is coming up. It's Our Auto Expert with Nick Miles.
I always feel like the music to this show makes me uh, feel like I should be out driving somewhere in a convertible. In a top down. Why well, put your mouth? Doesn't it? No. Jen, you give me funny looks. Yeah. That, the, because your movements, you're over there like getting down what, with it. With old music. guy dancing in the studio, <laughs> emergency, pull ripcord. Uh, welcome to our auto expert. I am Nick Miles, and uh, I uh, the magic that goes on in this studio is unbelievable because I mentioned to Jen a few weeks ago, you know, uh, my friend Nick James is now at a company called Road Trippers, which is a really, really cool website, and you should, we should, have, let's have him on, and she's like, okay, I'll get it organized, and uh, and then she says to me, coming in the studio today, I just looked at the website. It's really cool. I did all my research. <laughs> it is an amazing website, actually. Wish uh, we had this one as a kid. Um, but then road trips wouldn't have been so miserable, and you wouldn't have hated <laughs> traveling with your si- your sister everywhere in the back of the car, and her touching you, and all oh, the God, usual I things hated that happens. That. Yeah, you see? Ma'am, she's touching me. Exactly. Uh, Nick James is uh, joining us on the phone from Road Trippers. Uh, Nick, welcome to our auto expert. Um, Tell us about your sexy website. Thanks for having me, Nick. It's always lovely to chat with you. Um, Yeah, so, I mean, Road Trippers launched, I don't have to know if I give you the entire history, launched uh, seven years ago. James and Tatiana, the co-founders, were, um, James is an Englishman like you, and uh, Tatiana is an American, and they were road tripping together through a U.S., and they had, you know, uh, books on their dashboard and their laptop open and trying to find wacky, cool things, and he said, God, there's got to be a better way to do this, and so he looked around for apps and websites, and there just weren't, so they decided to do it together. Um, and they've just recently worked, they're working and now with me on board to expand the brand. We're moving into editorial content alongside our uh, distinctive mapping and points of interest and booking um, platforms. Um, just as sort of an overhead uh, overview of the, the idea of the website, people haven't gone yet, please do the roadtrippers.com and check out the app. Um, if you want to go the fast way, you know, use Google, use Waze. If you want to go and explore the country, Roadtrippers is really the way to do it. We probably have the largest uh, database of points of interest, KOIs, and wacky, weird things, um, largest in the, in the world, if not the country, or vice versa. And Nick, I know you used it one time. Um, just with some success. Yeah, no, I use it all the time, uh, Nick. It's uh, it's one of those fun places where you plan your so you put in your trips A to B, and you can sort of adjust your route by dragging the the icon around on the map, and then you can choose what's displayed, right? So you can see either restaurants or hotels, points of interest, photographic points. Uh, there's about ten, twelve different categories. The cool thing that I did, I was on a Chevy Camaro drive. And I think I started in uh, New Orleans, and I we had to end up in Dallas. And everybody else went up through Arkansas, and I decided to go along the coastal route. And uh, I found on Road Trippers a bunch of old retired battleships that you could actually... Get, they were sort of sailed up estuaries uh, in Texas that you could actually go and visit and go on board. And there was like a, you know, a, a retired sailor sitting at the, uh, the gate, and he'd let you in, and you could walk uh, on these ships and explore them and have fun. That's the sort of cool, wacky stuff. How many road tripper oh, yeah. users are there currently? You know, we're seeing, um, you know, a daily uh, 17,000 and more daily um, new saved trips. We uh, see over 3 million uh, unique visitors a month and growing. Um, so a lot of people are engaging with us, and we've recently just launched 
uh, Canada. So we're in the United, United States and Canada. We launched with the Chevrolet of Canada, funnily enough, um, given my background, as you know, Nick. And then we're also in Australia and New Zealand. Um, but, you know, and so I really love that story, you know, where you found those battleships. Because that's sort of the essence of it, right? If you would have never known where it was, even if you go further in that story, you know, like you had to go find an old man in a gap in a fence. Right. And, and road trippers sort of, yeah. you know, lead you to that, and you discover these amazing things. You know, we sort of see ourselves as the anti-GPS, even though we have a really, um, you know, strong mapping system backing up the, the website and the app. But it's really about you know, getting lost and, and discovering and, and having those adventures. There, uh, so I have a million and one questions. First question is, um, who does all this research, right? So, so somebody's got to go find this. So when I found the first, uh, the first battleship, um, I went into a, uh, a development and, and eventually I found my way across a field and the guy was sitting at the back of the field and, and, uh, you know, at a gate and it was kind of weird. It took me a long time to find, but because it was sort of in the middle of nowhere. But ultimately someone's got to check out these, uh, whole different, I guess things that you have on road trippers and make sure they're viable and real. So someone's going to be doing that real, right? Yeah, we've, um, you know, used uh, on staff folks, you know, essentially using the internet to find things. That was the early days. Uh, now we have such a large network of people on the road who reach out to us and say, Hey, we're going to, you know, you name it to the battleships. We're going to Yosemite. We're going to the biggest ball of twine. Do you want, you know, photos from that? And people will submit their own photos. They'll add some copy to it. And what's a new development for us is as we grow, our leadership has offered every employee of road trippers a thousand dollars a year to get out on the road and road trip with the hopes that they'll gather more data, stories, photos, you name it. So it's both, you know, early days internet hunting and now real, real people on the ground. Um, I, they've just flashed a message up on my screen here, apparently, and I have to have Brandon come in here. You'll have to come in here and then tell me how I put this guy on the phone with Nick. So. <laughs> oh, man, this is going to be really good. It, you have to push the right button. So, Nick, uh, apparently um, uh, Lars Larson is on the phone, and he wants to tell okay. you about his road trip. And so do we just... Okay. Lars, are you there? You have to press this button here. No. Uh, there we go. Lars, are you there? Yeah, there you go. Well, no. I, I wish I'd known about. I wish I'd known about road trippers. We just finished a road trip about a about a week and a half ago. We uh, flew into Boston, picked up a rental car, and went all over Maine, and then across the middle of Maine, off the main roads and on to, uh, to New Hampshire and then Vermont and then upstate New York and down through Pennsylvania, part of Maryland, part of West Virginia, into Kentucky, all the way across Kentucky, Kansas, and then uh, Colorado and up through Wyoming and over the Grand Tetons and back. Took us a couple of weeks. We had the best time, and I'm telling you, we, we live in an absolutely drop-dead gorgeous country. And when you'd have road trippers, you could have found places to photograph. You could have had uh, hotel rooms, uh, places to eat. That's the thing I really love, too. Uh, that's No, it sounds great. And I'm, I'm sorry I'm hearing about it now, but we, we, we had a great time. We're going to probably do it again. So I just wanted to drop that in for you. You're awesome. Lars Larson and Nick James. Look at that on, on the show. Roadtrippers.com, a great place to find your, uh, your next road trip. More of Our Auto Expert with Nick Miles is coming up.
Nick Miles, and this is our auto expert. Uh, by the way, if you uh, rushed out of the last segment, just a reminder, Nick James is at Road Trippers' awesome uh, website, and now Lars Larson wishing that he'd had that website when uh, he was taking it. sounds like he had a cool road trip, too. Uh, design a road trip. I go on there sometimes <coughs> just to design a road trip to uh, to see kind of where I want to stop and how long it'll take me, and uh, it would have been cool to have that on Mini Takes the States, which we just did, um, which was, I don't know, 10 hours in the car each day and uh trying to find places to stop for lunch it would have been cool if we'd planned it out um places to dry the sweat go to the bathroom next year year. no two years it's every two years okay so in In two years 2020 (laughs) jen's making her own mini takes the states 2020 (laughs) corvette takes states (laughs) all right uh the rebel rally is the first woman's off-road navigation rally in the united states and it is an eight-day drive a 10-day event in october held in southern california mercedes from uh, crankshaft uh, culture and uh, elise are a local team that are prepping for the next event. Uh, we should have Elise on the phone, and we should also have, um, we have Mercedes in studio. Um, there we go. No, I've got an echo. Uh, Elise, are you there? Yes. Ah, there you are. And Mercedes, welcome uh, to the show. All right, first question out of the box. You, this is not like a rally getting fast from A to B, right? No, it's not. So what? T- just give me the, give me the scoop. Give me, the, give me the down low. The scoop essentially is it's a traditional navigational challenge. So it is uh, maps and compass and a road book. There's absolutely no GPS, no technology, no cell phones, no laptops, things like that. No men. Uh, no men, all women. Yep, two do, you know, teams. do you know why this would not work for men? <laughs> they have to have technology, no, no offense. Men don't use maps. Ah. They naturally know where they're going. They don't need a map. <laughs> and there's no gas stations to ask for directions. <laughs> yeah, and there's no gas stations. <laughs> so, see, men wouldn't do this because it would, just wouldn't work. Cause I, I'm not sure. Uh, Ryan, do you know how to fold a map? I'm, I lose direction going to the bathroom. Hey, Matt, all the time. Ryan's mappily challenge. Yeah, uh, Ryan loves to think he knows where he's going all the time. But he could probably do with a GPS unit, right? Kelly, his uh, wife, is nodding in the other studio. Yeah, right. <laughs> She's just outed by your wife. I can lead people around forever, and they're like, "Oh, he knows where he's going." I'm like, "Oh, these people have no clue." <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, are you ready for things to go wrong? Oh yes. Uh, Elise is in charge of navigation. Uh, how's your yes, map? Right. How are your map reading skills? Pretty good. Uh, I have taken um, a lot of graduate courses in geographic information systems. Whoa, (laughs) whoa, graduate courses. Wait a second here. I thought this was a bit of fun. It sounds like school. (laughs) (laughs) Schooling involved to get this. This is the fun application of that. All right. It's out. I definitely couldn't do it there because there's schooling involved. It wouldn't work for me. Uh, All right. So are you ready for bad things to happen? I mean, they know they won't oh, yeah. because you'll be ready. So, what 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 are you uh, what are you cautious of happening on this rally? Well, as far as well, myself um, being the driver, rally took a driver. I think making sure that we're not going to get stuck, and if we do get stuck, that we have the proper equipment to be able to get us out. Uh, um, I happen to know that your husband uh, works for a winch company or a company famous for winches. So he you, does. Are you taking a winch on, along on this? Of course, they have a worn winch on their vehicle. <laughs> there you go, uh, and then. 
it, how does it work? So there's no roads involved, or you just give, give me a give me a snapshot of what a day would look like. Elise, I think this this is a good answer, a good question for you. Yeah. So basically, we get up at uh, the crack of dawn, um, you know, four or five a.m. in the morning. I could do um, that. I could do that, Paul. Right, carry on. Yeah. And I'll be in charge of, basically, I'll get the maps and our list of points for the day. And I will take over all of the navigational, plotting the points, um, you know, plotting our course, planning our the schedule for the day. Um, Mercedes uh, breaks down camp, gets us food, makes sure the vehicle is ready, yep. um, gets us all figured Wait. out. So, I so can I, let me back up a second here. Time. There's no hotels involved? Sure. No. no. All right, no. that's two reasons I couldn't be on this then. <laughs> There's tents involved. So Mercedes packs up everything, yeah, then, then what happens? And then we're on the road, and so um, we'll be chasing around checkpoints, finding each individual checkpoint. Basically, we have uh, the latitude and longitude for each point, and we ha- I have to plot it on the map, and then we have to go find it. The, there are three levels of checkpoints. There's green, blue, and black. The green ones are well-marked. When you arrive at that checkpoint, you'll know you're there. Um, you do have to arrive there at a cer- by a certain time um, and do them all in order. Um, but the green ones are easy. They're pretty simple. The blue ones, um, they're, they're marked, but they're hard to see until you actually get there. The black checkpoints are completely unmarked. Um, you basically have to trust your judgment, trust your work, and uh, just press the button. So it's like a video game in a sense, too, where you think you're on the right coordinates, you just hit the button on your cell phone and it tells you you're there. Is that how it works? Well, it's a button on a tracking device that they supply. There are no cell phones allowed. They quarantine them. They literally take them and and you can't have any technology with you. Um, You can have some cameras, although the cameras have to be non-Wi-Fi, older cameras, and nothing uh, larger than a 200 millimeter zoom lens. But they, they have two different tracking devices. One is that you run up to, you know, push the button where you think the blacks are or any of the checkpoints so that they know it. It sends a beam back to the, to the uh, scorecard judges and they know exactly where you're at. All the right. second one is for the vehicle. So they want to make sure that, A, you're going to come back alive and, B, you're not going to be stranded out there for days on end. Oh, so they can map you on like a little GPS unit. Yes. And the, what, one of the unique things about the Rebel Rally is they have a live tracker. So all of you guys can literally follow us live and follow everybody live. As we drive out to find these checkpoints, we just won't be able to do that. All right. So where do we do that? Where do we see what's There's going? a link that we'll be posting on Team Free Range Dames. Okay. Free Range Dames, is that what you're called? Yes. That is our team name. There's, oh, I have 10 questions about that, Free too. Range. But we, we, got, <laughs> we maybe we'll ask those in the second, in the second segment here. Uh, and then is it the person that's the most accurate that arrives on time or arrives first? That's a really good question. It's it's a combination. You can't go too fast. This isn't a race. They they call it a rally raid. So you need to make sure you can't go above the speed limits because there are some, even though they're off-road, there's still, still are speed That's limits. That's the third reason I couldn't remember. <laughs> right, go you can't on. go fast, very fast, fast. Um, but you have to make sure to be there in a timely fashion. So when you go to uh, find all these checkpoints, the A have to be in order. B, you have to make sure to be there when they're opened and not the checkpoints don't close on you. And C, if you go out of order or if you think you can backtrack and hit one, then you're disqualified for some of the rest of the points that you end up getting. Oh, it's, I think so that's the fourth reason. Too complicated. I can work this Timely out. manner, yeah. but it's not a race. All right, so what do you win? <laughs> What's the winning? What's the big prize? 
That's a good question. Um, Nothing, just the enjoyment of being part of it. It's kudos saying that you've done it and that you've won it. (laughs) (laughs) Telling your friends at the bar at night that you won the the Rebel Rally. That too, that too. Um, It it costs... You get... Go on. Oh, so you get a free entry for the next year. Oh, well, I guess you could do it all over again as if you weren't punished enough the first time. (laughs) There are people that want to do this, us included. Okay, well, let's see if you feel the same way when you get back. I mean, there's... We can have a post-interview. It sounds really like a good idea until maybe you did it, and then it doesn't sound like a good idea. Here's uh, here's my next question. It costs $12,000 to be involved. Mm -hmm. That is not... That's the price of a car, by the way. A cheap car, but a car. No, uh, not a cheap car. That's probably a pretty good car. Well, okay. and $12,000, initially when Elise and I uh, signed up for this and, and became a team and, and wanted to do this, we thought, gosh, you know, that, that is quite a bit of money, right? Um, but when we started digging in to understand what that registration fee all goes for, it's it's actually very inexpensive, uh, uh, not race, but like a rally or a challenge um, compared to a lot of the other competitions or races, races that are out there. That could be twenty, thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars on up. So sell me on it. Well, so, yeah. why, why is that a good deal? Because it's still twelve thousand dollars. Doesn't sound like a good deal to yeah, me. Yeah. So so twelve thousand dollars. So a she's got a team. Emily Miller, the founder of Rebel Rally, she's got a team of sixty five people um, that are staff members to put this on every single year right. um, you've got a few thousand kilometers or uh, over a thousand miles of off-road uh, dr- um, basically driving that you need to do so from the uh, Lake Tahoe area all the way down to San Diego close to the Mexican border that you need to do permits for and talk to land management companies and all right. sorts of things for that there's 48 uh, meals um, you know there's tech teams there's also uh, first aid teams all that stuff that's all included plus a base camp I have more questions we're going to ask you more <laughs> questions when we come back the rebel <laughs> rally uh, we've got the team in the studio here that's uh, more from them coming up on our auto expert keep listening more of our auto expert with nick miles is coming up welcome to the fast lane our auto expert with nick miles continues uh, we are talking about the rebel rally which is not a rally race as traditionally known mercedes is with us from crankshaft uh, and also uh, elise what's the name of the team again the team name is team free range yeah free range so why free range why are you free range were you raised in a field no, we weren't raised in a field, but we were thinking since she lives in Bozeman, Montana, and I'm in Portland, Oregon, um, what, and we both love mountains, and we both love getting out there, and the whole Portlandia thing, and, and just trying to figure out what we could do, and obviously it's an all-women's team, so Free Range Dames decided to stick. All right, works for me. Uh, so let's talk about what you're going to be driving, because uh, you, uh, you've chosen a vehicle that's capable, but not necessarily simple to drive. Elise, this yeah. is your rig. So, do you want to go? <laughs> So Bomber Products provided us with a 2012 Toyota Tacoma. It's a manual transmission. Um, it's pretty well built up. It's got an ARB front bumper, the old man Emu suspension, a um, little bit more aggressive tire. Uh, we have a Lightner uh, system in the bed with some storage options. We have a worn winch on it. Um, let's see what else. This rear CBI bumper and CBI sliders as well. So, have you, uh, like, practiced changing tires and stuff like that? Is there, like, tire drill? Who's going to get the jack? Who's going to loosen the nuts and stuff? It's a good question. We haven't talked about that yet. (laughs) (laughs) So, both of us have training in recovery scenarios and uh, that sort of thing, but Mercedes is going to come over to Bozeman, Montana next weekend, and we're going to do some training. We're going to go to the St. Anthony Sand Dunes 
um, and do some driving practice. We're also going to do some recovery scenarios so we can sort all of that stuff out. So you'll do everything behind closed doors, and so when you actually have to perform in public, you'll be all ready in shape in Bristol fashion, right? Well, there's not really a public uh, per se, because we'll pretty much be just the two people out in the middle of nowhere, and you might pass another team, you know, you might... Um, you know, see photographers here and there, but you're pretty much by yourself. So, can I? So, when you get out, you're camping. All right. Uh, when you get out there, have you like divided the tasks between you? So and so's do the cooking. So and so, or hey, maybe you're hunting for your food. I don't know how. Hey. <laughs> that would be funny, especially in the sand dunes if we were to hunt for food. <laughs> well, there's aren't there critters in the sand dunes. Yeah, lizards, right? Right. Stuff. Lizards and snakes. Um, so they provide um, 48 meals. So All right, um, that's, a, that's all right. $12,000 is starting to make a little more sense uh, now. Exactly. So as far as the food aspect of it, um, we're fed in the morning. So, um, oh, wait, this sounds like we're, you know, all in line to get fed. But no, we, we um, to get our breakfast. <laughs> no, there's actually a Michelin star chef that's going to be Whoa, preparing food hey, at base that, camp, I understand. $12,000 sounding a lot better uh, now. From what I understand, yes. So, um, but so there, if there's any specific snacks that we want to bring, in addition to what they have, we can buy them. But otherwise, everything is pretty much provided for food. Um, water is also supplied, um, gasoline, all of this is mobile at the ba mobile base camp that comes with us. Well, ga gas? Okay, I get it. What, what about, you have mechanics too, don't you? There are mechanics. Um, so when we come back at the end of the day, uh, there is a period of time where if we do have issues or if we need to fix something, that they'd be able to assist us. If there's, God forbid, any catastrophic failure that's out on the trails or in the sand dunes somewhere, um, you do have satellite phone. You do rent one. Uh, so every team has one. Again, if there's a medical emergency, God forbid, um, but there are mechanics who are first aid team that come it can come out, but then of course that can cost you points in time. All right, uh, you know, on a recent road trip, I did really nice things for Ryan. I bought him candy when we were on the <laughs> really nice things. Yeah, yes. I did. I bought you candy, didn't I? I still haven't ate those yet. I'm gonna eat those. They had bugs. <laughs> they had bugs in them. Yeah, and ants and scorpions Ooh. in them. But uh, there's a video online. You can see that at, uh, if you go to our Facebook page. I think, uh, and see some of that. It's really too. not that exciting. It's just me eating. Well, you didn't eat it. Against, well, I didn't yeah. eat it, I just guess. went, oh, thanks for the candy with <laughs> the ants in it. Uh, <laughs> the look on his face is classic. Yeah, it's he like, was what excited. What am I doing with this? When are you guys, uh, are you guys going to sort of uh, do some fun stuff along the way, or is it all going to be struggling to make sure you don't get lost in the middle of the desert? It's going to be pretty intense the, for the entire duration. Um, we're going to be going, you know, 10, 12 hour days, um, in the car, not including some of the prep work, um, and, you know, cooling down and, and making sure our truck is, uh, repaired and ready to go for the next day. Um, so it's going to be some long days. We'll probably take a few moments to enjoy the view, take some photos, that sort of thing. But I think, uh, for the most part, we'll be pretty busy. And doesn't it get cold at night in the desert? It does. So how are you going to combat that? Yeah. Warmth. <laughs> yeah. Are you going to get to build a fire? Do you get an electric, electric blanket? Or well, we'll have, we'll, we'll pack our clothing. So we've got technical clothing, um, you know, good sleeping bags, things like that. Things like that. So um, we have to be prepared for severe heat. We have to be prepared for wind, especially in the sand dunes, can be really interesting. And also for cold, because it is the desert, so it gets really cold at night. And uh, you, is it just the two of you? Are you allowed to bring, you You know, like a puppy or did yeah, you protect I wish. you or whatever? <laughs> I <laughs> wish. <laughs> no, no puppies. Uh, no kittens it, either. I, I, like, I'm torn between this is a great adventure, but then there's like bugs and sleeping outside and snakes. And yeah, well, I do that cold. anyways, though, so... 
What? But you yeah. stick with bugs and snakes? No, not necessarily yeah. with the snakes. Not, not yet, anyways. But this uh, is all supplemented with a five-star Michelin chef. Yeah, right. so you get to sleep on the ground, but we drive you get really for the chef. Food. We drive for the chef. It yeah. seems <laughs> so confusing that you have a, uh, well, I guess a three-star is the most Michelin chef, and I'm, I'm, if he's a three-star, then I'd be really surprised. But if this Michelin chef is coming along for the ride, so you're sleeping outdoors in the tent, but you got to have a Michelin chef, I'm very confused. Because it's at one end, it's me, like I'm totally the Michelin chef part. I've got that down. But then there's the whole, you know, like sleeping outdoors, I'm not sure about. How? Uh, all right, all right. I, I have a million questions. Where can we find out more? So we have so our, our website. Oh, go ahead. So our website is teamfreerangedames.com. We are also Team Free Range Dames on social media with Instagram and Facebook, and we also have a GoFundMe uh, account set up. So GoFundMe slash Team Free Range Dames. All right, find out more at our auto expert and uh, Anton Woolman, our crazy professor and man scientist, next. Keep listening. More of Our Auto Expert with Nick Miles is coming up. It's Our Auto Expert with Nick Miles. Uh, so those young ladies are beyond their trip, and uh, you can follow them. Uh, we'll put up the, uh, the website, and also we'll, we'll mention who made all that possible. Uh, I want to turn to uh, talking about something that's been in the news uh, quite a lot, and that is the fact that uh, Elon Musk said he was going to take Tesla private, and uh, the man who's going to have all the ins and outs and the complete facts on that is Anton Woolman, independent analyst and investor. You can see uh, much of his or read much of his stuff at SeekingAlpha.com. So, Anton, uh, it seems like this is not just uh, something that uh, Elon Musk said and didn't really mean. It sounds like he's got the, uh, the, the money to back up his statement about taking Tesla private. Well, not exactly. Uh, I think what we learned in uh, in particular his interview uh, this last week with the New York Times is that uh, in his mind he had had some conversations with the Saudi sovereign wealth fund and that based on those conversations he sort of kind of thought that he felt optimistic that maybe, just maybe, um, he might have somebody who was willing to invest a fair amount of money in the company, but he didn't actually have a deal. He had no term sheet. He had no formal proposal or no path to get to what he said he wanted to do, which was to enable all of the existing public shareholders in Tesla to participate in Tesla actually going private. So at this point, it's a bit up in the air. And what we learned here subsequently the breaking news, more or less today, is that uh, apparently the Saudi uh, National Wealth Fund is also talking to another electric vehicle startup, which hasn't yet produced a single car, really, called Lucid Motors. Lucid Motors was founded by Peter Rawlinson, who was the former uh, co-chief engineer of the Tesla Model S and uh, left Tesla uh, about uh, six, six and a half years ago. So... Uh, there are a lot of moving parts at this point, and at this moment in time, we do not have a firm verdict or anything close to it as far as uh, money actually exchanging hands. I am roaring with laughter inside. You are so clever with your words. You said, in Elon Musk's mind, <laughs> he had this conversation, uh, which... 
Which now leads me to the question that if he didn't have funding and said that he was thinking about taking Tesla private, isn't that a problem for uh, certain government organizations? Well, to be sure, I mean, that's a separate set of problems, of course, if if, uh, if basically this deal comes through or not, that uh, at the time of uh, him making that statement, it wasn't exactly true, then, then that is opens up a whole can of worms with respect to um, securities laws and uh, uh, securities exchange regulation and so forth. And that's going to have to be sorted out. And now, of course, we now uh, have the Tesla board of directors, which previously had been a kind of a sleepy little entity consisting in part of Elon Musk's brother and some of his old longtime backers and investors in SpaceX and his other ventures. But suddenly they realized, oh, Lord, what do we have here? They now have to protect their own liabilities. So they have now hired their own counsel and are in the process of hiring their own investment bankers and and trying to uh, create uh, more of a sort of a credible uh, structure that can evaluate whatever proposal that may or may not come out of uh, uh, Elon Musk's uh, willingness or intent to uh, take this company private. He seems to uh, to have an awful lot of problems uh, with allowing his mouth to run off a little bit because what's the consequences of the fact that he didn't have funding? Uh, what what can, can the Securities and Exchange Commission do to him? Well, the Securities and Exchange Commission, uh, are, you know, they can fine uh, companies basically for uh, doing this or that, or they can bar people from being an officer or director of a public company. Uh, typically, there are you know fines that in the big scheme of things, large companies can handle. The situation that we're facing is a bit unprecedented because, of course, Tesla doesn't have all that much money on this whole story that uh, precipitated the situation was, was, of course, based around the idea that they would get a lot of money. And if they don't get that amount of money, then, well, we have a problem, number one. The other problem would be if the SEC refers uh, its inquiry over to the Department of Justice, and they have a, a heavier hand in these things if uh, if it all should all come to that. And they, they, uh, they, would, uh, they could actually levy criminal penalties upon the people uh, involved in in a matter of this nature a witness for example what happened when but the privately held theranos which was uh, fined by the security securities and exchange commission back in i believe march and subsequently referred to the matter to the department of justice and now they have uh, essentially more or less uh, indicted the company and uh, so we don't we just don't know what's going to come out of that on that front but i think more importantly for the company to function really we need to determine will the company get any money whether they be uh, taken private or not isn't necessarily the sole factor here the sole factor or i should say another factor would be in short of going private would some entity such as the saudi sovereign wealth fund be willing to invest money in a more conventional way, like a like just a plain vanilla investment in the company, even though this is a publicly held company, you could have a private investment in a public entity, a so-called pipe. A, an investment of that nature would not be inconceivable, and uh, uh, and if so, it could, uh, you know, of course, give the company some more uh, leeway here to survive another year. All right, so you're listening to Anton Woolman. He is an independent analyst and investor on Our Auto Expert. Anton, 
there are many questions that come out of this. One of them is, so there was recently a vote in which Elon Musk could have lost control of Tesla. Uh, they reaffirmed him as uh, the CEO and the leader of Tesla. Uh, at this point, is there any uh, mileage for the board members to remove him if they think if they don't want him to take this company private, or are, are all the board members in support of taking it private? Is there any uh, argument between them in which direction they want to go, or are they just staying stum and quiet about it? Until two weeks ago, I would have put the probability of that happening to be near zero. That's when, when somebody proposed that here just a couple of months ago. Uh, it was pretty obvious that it was going nowhere. However, we are now in all of a sudden in a different world. It's a bit of a Hobson's choice for the board of directors because on the one hand, if Elon Musk goes, you, know, you could make the argument that the premium that Tesla is afforded in the stock market uh, could go out the window because his main ability uh, to propel the company forward has traditionally been his ability to raise money. And the company, Lord knows, needs money. It still loses a lot of money. And while it has promised both profitability and being free cash flow positive for the second part of this year, uh, we have not seen any evidence of that yet. Of course, you know, the third quarter won't be reported until right about November 1st, plus or minus a few days, so we don't know yet. But um, basically, at this point, the company needs a lot of money. So if the board wants to remove Elon Musk from the CEO position, that could impact the company's ability to raise money. But if they don't remove him, and it is shown that he has done some very bad things, if that were to be the outcome of these investigations, then the board of directors essentially could be themselves be held liable for not doing, quote unquote, the right thing. So uh, uh, that is the dilemma that has got to play itself out here over the next few uh, weeks, basically. Uh, so either way, the potential for uh, trouble at Tesla is huge. I mean, if things don't go his way with uh, some kind of reporting, it could end up that uh, he could end up getting jail time if the worst case scenario happens. Uh, on the other side of things, uh, if the board don't remove him and there was some kind of wrongdoing, the, the company itself could be in trouble. But if the things seem to go the way they always do for Elon, it, he the likelihood is he'll probably escape out of this, right? That is certainly a scenario in this case. I mean, at a minimum, the company is now facing numerous private lawsuits for from people who both were long and short the stock on both sides of the equation. Depending on exactly the timeline, they could have a complaint based on Elon Musk having said something to the public market that wasn't quite true and that then caused them to either buy or sell the stock during a specific moment in time when it simply wasn't clear whether what he said was truthful or not. So he's going to have billions and billions of dollars in private lawsuits, no matter what, from both sides of the investing equation. On top of that, we are most likely, in my opinion, going to see some form of sanction from the SEC. Now, for a big company, broadly speaking, like Tesla, which is, we're talking about in the billions of dollars, but, you know, a fine would have to be very, very large to matter. So whether a, such a fine will be large enough to matter is way too early to say on this point. And if there's going to be any sanction beyond the SEC, that's even uh, more uncertain than this moment in time. 
So Tesla are losing around $23,000 on every car they sell, at least on the Model 3. Is that likely to reduce on every car they sell? Or uh, at this point, if things don't go their way, are the, the loss is going to just mount? Well, that would be uh, the case or not, regardless of this whole taken private situation, I think, at least in the short run. Clearly, Tesla is working hard to improve its gross margins. Uh, of course, their gross margins, and this is a far larger story that we should certainly discuss in other moment in time, is measured very differently than all other automakers measure gross margin. But the bottom line is that you're correct. They lose somewhere in the ballpark of $20,000 per car manufactured and sold. And uh, the company was going to turn that around this very quarter, the third quarter that ends now in the end of September, to essentially hit the break-even point. That is the promise that the company has been stating all the way since, at a minimum, the beginning of April, and certainly has reiterated as late as uh, on its quarterly earnings call on August 1st. Uh, when it reported the uh, June quarter results. So uh, if the company doesn't do that so that they are not profitable, and more importantly for the short run, if they are not cash flow positive, then the company will be in a position where they most likely have to raise more money. So whether they go private or not, they certainly need more money coming in from some direction, whether from the Saudis or from the general investing public or from uh, some other actor. Is anybody going to lend them more money? Well, the company's ability to raise debt at this point is very limited. If you look at the company's bond rating from, say, Moody's, which is one of the largest uh, agencies that rate corporate debt, it is basically trading uh, near junk territory. And the interest rate that they would have to pay in order to raise money uh, with bonds uh, would be very, very high. I think the most straightforward path would be an equity investment so that somebody would buy new shares diluting the existing shareholders in the company. And that was sort of in part the kind of transaction that was conceived together with the Saudi government, but of course uh, never, or at least not until this moment in time, actually materialized in a formal proposal. So if the company needs more capital, it's going to have to be in the form of equity, not debt. So uh, on a percentage of likelihood that Tesla will survive these uh, multiple scandals? Well, I think that at a minimum what is going to happen is that uh, a transaction that will involve a major capital infusion will have to be very dilutive to the existing shareholders, diluting their ownership in the company. So I think that that is probably, in my opinion right now, right. the most likely right. scenario. And... Um, uh, that uh, that would be a pretty tough situation for the company to live through over the next few months. Anton Wallman, you can read his stuff at SeekingAlpha.com. He is our independent analyst and investor. And you heard all that Tesla news here first. 24-7, our auto expert at OurAutoExpert.com. You can also find us on all your regular social media channels, uh, Facebook, Twitters, and also Instagram. See some cool pictures of cars. Next week, Concord Elegance.